Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. I'm Tony. And we are your brothers from another mother. Yeah, we are. Tony, how, how you doing, are you? Jesse? I'm good. I'm doing good. What's up? Not much. We're just killing the open, evidently. That's what we're yeah. doing. <laughs> well, you know, whatever. We try. How's your Lord's Day? Yeah, I had a good had a good Lord's Day. It was good to be in the house of the Lord. Did some uh, Bible study action. How about yourself? Nice. Yeah, same. Same. We had church this morning, and it was like uh, New Hampshire decided it was going to be winter today. We had snow this morning. It didn't stick around, but we had some flurries, and it was like wind gusts of like 30 or 40 miles an hour at points. It was crazy. I'm pretty sure they say this about every place or wherever you live. You hear people say this, but New Hampshire for me is definitely that quintessential. If you don't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes and it will change. Yeah, seriously. Like it was uh, earlier this week, it was like 70 degrees. And then this morning when I woke up, it was like 35 degrees with snow. And I think it'll probably be back up in the mid 60s uh, like tomorrow. That is the New Hampshire I know and love. It is. It's great. But it's also terrible. (laughs) Living the dream. So, Tony, happy Reformation Day. I thought because Reformation Day is coming up on the 31st, in which we traditionally, at least, celebrate Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses or grievances to a church door in in Wittenberg in 1517, I thought it would be good for us to talk a little bit about why the Reformation is still relevant, what it means, but from a a little bit of a different angle. Yeah, great. So um, if you'd like to join our brotherhood before we get started, uh, you can uh, follow us on Facebook by joining our group. Uh, You can also tweet us at Reform Brotherhood, or you can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. Lots of great ways to interact with us. If you've got questions, uh, just hit us up in one of those areas, and we will uh, take a look at what you've got and get it on the show. So because Reformation Day is coming up, again, it's usually on the 31st, and not just a reason to not celebrate Halloween. It's a legitimate remembrance of at least an alleged event. I mean, there is a lot of speculation as to whether or not Martin Luther actually nailed these 95 theses. But the angle I want to approach it from tonight is something that I've been thinking about recently. And that is, oftentimes we think about the Reformation in terms of all of its wonderful, robust theological outworkings, all these great ideas, and we kind of sit as armchair theologians and discuss these terms, all this amazing stuff that these really giants, these men and women of the faith brought forth out of that time period. And what's interesting to me is I think the problem with the Reformation is it's only really congenial to modern American evangelicalism if it is reduced to these like basic compartmentalized doctrinal ideas. And I've been reminded that the people of that era were, like all heirs, in search for truth, in search for intimacy with God, that they wanted to to know him better and to obey him more and to love their neighbors as themselves. And so the Reformation was, yes, a theological event, but it was really intended to have moral consequences. So I want to focus on what those should be. But before we do that, rather than spending like a lot of time in the historicity of it and all the nuances of the Reformation. Let's talk, though, briefly about just a brief cursory primer on what was the Reformation. Yeah, so um, in order to really understand the Reformation, you have to understand kind of the Church of the Middle Ages, which is way beyond the scope of what we have here um, for time. But if, if you really want to dig into it, um, you can go to uh, iTunes, uh, iTunes University, uh, look up Carl Truman's lectures on the Middle Age Church uh, or the Medieval Church. And you'll really get an idea of kind of what was going on. But the basic gist of it is that in the Middle Ages, um, the church really rose to a place of prominence. And they started to depart from Scripture in some pretty significant ways. So they started following what's what's called a Pelagian line of theology, where um, basically there was a part of the human uh, person that wasn't corrupted by sin. And as long as that person really followed their conscience and, and obeyed what wasn't corrupted, they could kind of merit their way to heaven. Now, they're not quite Pelagians. They're not really semi-Pelagians. That, that isn't really a thing that exists. Um, but that was kind of the world that Martin Luther was, was raised in and, and in his early years was really on board with. 
And so there was all sorts of things that kind of accumulated around that idea. And one of the things uh, was some, something called indulgences, which is actually something that still exists in the Roman Catholic Church today. And what an indulgence was is that the Roman Catholic Church believes there's something called a treasury of merit. And what it is is when a, a saint or when Mary or when Jesus, um, when they died, um, Jesus is a, a unique circumstance, but when Mary or St. Augustine or St. Anselm or Abraham, when they died, they had this abundance of merit. They had more than they needed to get into heaven. And so that extra merit is deposited into this treasury of merit. Um, and so an indulgence was the church saying, I'm going to take some of that extra merit that we're sort of stocking up on and you can, you can obtain it. And there was a lot of different ways that you could obtain it. But the one in the Reformation that was the most problematic was you could buy an indulgence. And so there was a um, kind of a traveling preacher, huckster named uh, John Tetzel or Johannes Tetzel. And he, um, he was selling indulgences in order to help fund uh, the, the building of St. Peter's Basilica, which is where the uh, Roman Catholic Church still seats the papacy right now. Um, and so he traveled through Germany, and there's all sorts of complex political things that we don't have to get into. But what Luther really saw was that this practice of selling indulgences was really hurting his congregation. So Luther was a monk who um, he was assigned a uh, teaching post at Wittenberg, and he started to recognize um, some of the problems with this. Now, Luther saw himself as a faithful, faithful Catholic, and so we talk about him you know, going out and nailing these theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And, you know, if you watch the movies, he storms out there and he's got his hammer and he's hammering on the door and he's angry. And in reality, what, what Luther was doing is he had these 95 theses um, because he wanted to spark an academic debate. So that was how you would sort of issue a challenge for a debate in those days is you would take your theses, you would take them to whatever the, the public door that was used as like a bulletin board was, and you would post them. It's most likely that Luther sent it out there with an assistant who just tacked it up on the door. Um, and through a series of events, um, these theses kind of came to the attention of the uh, Roman Catholic powers that be. And so it sparked kind of a, a new movement within the church um, to recognize for all sorts of reasons that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. So salvation was obtained by God for his people and applied to God, not through their works, but through a, a sheer act of grace. Um, and so this was obviously very different than what was going on in the Roman Catholic world. So that really spread throughout Europe. Um, it started in Germany. It moved out towards uh, Switzerland, where we have uh, Ulrich Zwingli uh, kind of kicking off the Swiss Reformation. John Calvin comes in, kind of the next generation uh, in Fran uh, French Switzerland, in Geneva, and in uh, Basel. And he kind of picks up where Zwingli left off and developed it. These ideas spread to uh, Britain uh, when Henry VIII for a lot of complex reasons, wanted to separate from the Catholic Church. John Knox was a refugee who spent time in Geneva, and he kind of started Presbyterianism. So these ideas sort of spread throughout continental Europe and um, the, Brit the British Isles, uh, the UK, um, really like wildfire. It really happened very quickly. Uh, and that's kind of where we get the Reformation. Um, you know, we're talking about a time period probably from, you know, 1517 is the traditional date, but you see some movements before Luther that are very similar in terms of theology and disposition um, and really going until, um, you know, you could even say until like the 17th century with the Westminster Assembly and things like that. Um, some people would even push it a little bit later with, with some of the Baptist movements in London um, coming into the beginning of the uh, 18th century. Interactions and discussions, debates on Facebook would be so much better if we brought back the idea that rather than just posting somebody something, you had to actually take something and go nail it to the person's door. That'd be like yes. a far better method for holding people accountable, I think. Absolutely. So it would be would behoove me to say at this point, before uh, we'd say anything else, um, if you want to go and put something up at your local Catholic church uh, to be funny... Use tape. Okay, don't damage their property. So if you want to go tape a copy of the 95 Theses up there, which uh, more power to you. I think it's a sort of harmless, funny way to uh, communicate that. Just don't destroy property, okay? Not that All we're right. condoning that, but definitely post pictures. Yes. If you do it, take some pictures. Uh, if I see nails in uh, the doors of churches, I'm going to be pretty, pretty disappointed. So, But yeah, but tape it up. So Reformation Day is a great way to kind of remember exactly what you said, at least kind of in the grand idea. 
like you said, one of the problems is it kind of perpetuates this myth that everything happened all at once. Like it was this one fell swoop religious experience. And it was again, over lots of time. So rather than get bogged down in all those details, I think we use that as a great, a really great summary. So here's kind of what I want to talk about is a couple of essential questions. I think changed again, these moral outworkings of, of Christianity in many ways. And this is something that's great that like all kind of streams of, Protestant faith can celebrate. I think sometimes people think, well, the Reformation or Reformation Day in particular is really just for Reformed churches or Reformed congregations. But there's been so much born out of that that has really shaped how we understand God, how we come before him. So here's the first thing I want to talk about. As a result of the Reformation, how did that change how we understand how a person is saved? Let's start there. Sure. Sure. So um, I, I think it's important to say, too, that these ideas that Martin Luther, um, so maybe just a little bit more information about Martin Luther, because we don't want to paint a picture that the church existed for 1500 years and everybody was a hundred percent wrong. And then Martin right. Luther drops out of the sky on a cloud and saves the church. Um, in reality, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk and he came to these ideas that he had by studying Augustine. Um, so it was not as though he uh, was a new was teaching new things. Now it's absolutely the case that if you ask a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox Christian nowadays, they're going to say, "Well, these are brand new ideas," but in reality, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see uh, precedence in uh, Clement of Alexandria, um, sorry, Clement of Rome, who uh, was uh, I think it was either the third or fourth uh, bishop of Rome. Uh, according to the traditional history. So we're talking uh, about the Pope, basically, of the era. Um, That's very anachronistic. But if you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you want to kind of get into this, they're acknowledging that this person was the leader of the church at that point. Um, And we've got all of these ideas throughout the early part of the church. So it's not as though um, everybody was wrong and then suddenly there was one guy who was right. What it is, is it's more like the era after the apostles, there sort of begins a slow decline. Um, for a lot of complex historical reasons um, and political reasons, there's a decline in knowledge generally and a decline in theological knowledge and, and reliance on scripture in the church. As the Roman uh, Catholic Church became more powerful, particularly the Bishop of Rome and who would later be called the Pope, um, they stopped relying on scripture and started relying more on oral tradition and, and proclamations from the papacy. Um, when Luther came around, he's an Augustinian monk. He was challenged to study the Old Testament by his um, the people who he was reporting to. And in studying um, Augustine, he came to a phrase in Augustine where Augustine explains that the righteousness of God, which is a phrase in Romans, is not our righteousness before God. It's God's righteousness given to us. And so he comes to this idea of, of what he calls an alien righteousness. And this is important because um, Luther's sort of uh, insight or his um, kind of, I don't want to say revelation, that's not the right word, but his epiphany, which is just a different way to say the same word, but his um, his insight that he sort of came to was that it's this alien righteousness that's outside of us that God gives to us. And this righteousness is Christ's righteousness. And that righteousness given to us is what makes us good. It's what makes us right. Now, not in a way where it's infused into us and transforms us from the inside out, but it's like a covering that covers over us. And when God looks at that, he sees his righteous son. So that's really important to remember. So the way that we see this and how people thought about being saved differently is in the Roman Catholic system. When you're baptized as a baby or as an adult, if you're a convert, but mostly when you're baptized as a baby, original sin is removed and you start off at zero and righteousness is infused inside of you and you grow and adapt to that righteousness. You either cooperate with that righteousness or you fight against it. If you cooperate with that righteousness, then you eventually become just. And so as R.C. Sproul is fond of saying, in the final analysis, when God looks at you in the Roman Catholic system, you are righteous and just because you have been transformed. And he says, you are righteous. You've earned your way into heaven. You've merited your way into heaven, even though the beginning of that process was a gracious gift. So grace is what starts the process for the Roman Catholic. And then you have to you have to merit your way from there. You have to become just in order to be declared or to be found just in the final analysis. For the Protestant and for Luther specifically in this case, 
it's it's called a sin or it's a forensic justification and what that means is god god looks at you and he says not guilty not on the basis of what you are but on the basis of what he has declared you to be so he looks at you and he takes christ's righteousness he imputes it to you or he applies it to you he covers you with it and then he looks at that righteousness and says righteous which is very different than saying christ Christ's righteousness becomes a part of us and then makes us righteous. So he's looking at our righteousness. Right. In the Protestant schema, God is always looking at Christ's righteousness. Even though we do really become righteous and just, we do grow in holiness and eventually we do become just. Um, not in this life, but in the next. But he never looks at us and says, I'm going to accept you into my kingdom because of your righteousness. It's always on account of Christ's righteousness. So that's really the big difference in the Reformation is, um, we no longer have to feel as though we have to become righteous. We never have to fear that God is going to look at us and say, you haven't done enough or you are not righteous enough. You are not just enough because um, we know he's always going to look at us and see his son who he deeply loves, who came and died and applied that righteousness to us. So he looks at us and he sees Jesus and he pardons our sins because of it. Right. And those aren't, as you said, necessarily new theological ideas for Luther's era. It was just that they're applied in a dramatically different way, that the pendulum had swung so far the other way in terms of the Catholic Church that there was this sense that there was there had to be earned. And just the fact that there were indulgences proved that fact. It's right. interesting that like the entire medieval system was about, at least in Luther's day, like this interior moral renewal. And the Reformation is that the gospel is totally outside of us, that the gospel is that Christ has done it all for us, and justification is solely on that ground of that imputed righteousness. And I'm trying to think, if I were in that error, and somebody's explaining this to me, and I had grown up in the Catholic Church with the understanding that I'm baptized, I start even, and then I have to work really hard to maintain that righteousness, what it would be to get this really good news, which of course the gospel is, that Christ has done the work for you already. I mean, that is a really right. dramatic shift in thinking. I mean, that's a Romans 12 style renewal of the mind that changes right. the heart altogether. I'm sure like everybody's had professors who have like made the case where they're like, I don't, I don't mark any questions wrong. You don't get deducted for any points for answering a question wrong. You just only get credit for all the right questions you answer and you start at zero. And the bottom line right. is, it's the same difference. And so that that's essentially what yeah. we're saying is you, you've you got to earn it all. And I'm thinking of just how beautiful it is to say that, that it, the righteousness of Christ is imputed, that we come into the, the throne room of God under that righteousness. I've heard like the metaphor, you know, if like somebody were just like, let's say I was sitting on the couch and uh, somebody were like just to walk into my living room, like walk into the front door. There would definitely be like a strange confrontation if like a stranger just came into my right. life. However, right. if that same person comes in with my wife, then it's totally different. And she introduces me and, and now that person is like instantly accepted and welcomed because of the connection. And that's essentially yeah. what we're saying is the total difference here. I mean, it is like a complete turn of events. So Yeah, I mean, it. it's interesting. It, it's, it's apropos for our podcast to use this analogy is, you know, God says that, Christ is married to the church. And so um, in a very real way, if I were to go over to, you know, our, our parents' house in the middle of the day and let myself in and play with the dog and, you know, take a bottle of water and whatnot, um, if I was just some dude off the street, that's a crime, right? I'm breaking the law. Straight I'm violating up. someone's privacy. However, because I'm married to your sister, um, I'm part of that family now. So, yes, we need to, you know, obviously I don't go over there and eat mom and dad's food in the middle of the day. Uh, mom, if you're listening to this, I don't eat your food in the middle of the day. But um, but if I were to buy, you know, if I were to go over there and eat an apple, it's not a crime. Right. And for the most part, she's probably going to say, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and have an apple. Um, so that's a very real thing. And that gets into kind of this idea that the 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 people who kind of want to degrade or to detract from what what happened in the Reformation, they call this kind of salvation a legal fiction. You might hear that is it's a legal fiction. And where they get that is um, God is looking at someone who is not inherently just, but he's saying they're just anyways. And so they're saying like, well, it's just a sort of a trick of words or it's a legal fiction. Uh, but the fact is like, my uh, my marriage with Ashley started with a proclamation. It started with words. It started when, um, in, in our case, you know, your father said to us, 
and now pronounce you man and wife. Right, declaration. Now, someone could look at that and say, well, that's just a legal fiction. It's just a trick of words. But in reality, you know, our, our father brought into effect a new state of reality when he said that. Now, how much more powerful is it when the father of the universe, the creator of the universe, says this is now reality? Um, you know, sometimes Michael Horton, who's one of my theological heroes, he kind of gets beat on a little bit once in a while because he makes heavy use of something called speech act theory. But I think it really plays out is that um, when the father declares you just or the father says you are righteous, you are my son, um, when the father says he's going to adopt you, um, that brings about a new state of reality. Um, you try telling an adopted kid that his his uh, relationship with his parents is just a legal fiction because because it's just a piece of paper or it's just it's just an intention of the courts or something like that. Um, it's not going to go well, and it shouldn't go well because that's not really the the case. And that's where Luther's concept of that forensic justification comes in. That's a declaration that is real. It actually affects a change right. in reality that is just as real as a marriage or anything else. It has a legal right. standing and essentially the court of God's law. Exactly. And that's, again, I'm just thinking the impact of that on us, because I sometimes think a better word for the Reformation would have been like renewal or resurgence or revival, because what we're talking about yeah. is going back to the scriptures, putting them in their primary place and understanding what it says about our relationship with God. And that's freeing in this day and, and in all days. Um, yeah, very much was a recovery. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's a really good way of saying it, that we're, we're coming back to putting first things first, and we're trying to get all the priorities right. That language means something, that God's word means something. And, you know, that the tradition of the church, while it's important, it's not the sole authority, and it shouldn't be the first authority. Yeah, yeah, right on. So here's the second thing I want to think about. So we talk about how a person is saved, and, and that really is of like tremendous import um, for all people. Uh, here's the thing that I think is really interesting that the Reformation absolutely confronts head on, and that is where does religious authority lie? Let's talk about that for a second. Yes, yeah, that is the question. So um, there's there's two things that happen in the Reformation. Well, there's, there's definitely more than two things, but there's two really big things Just that happen things. in the Reformation. Just two things, yeah, that's it. Um, there's a, a questioning of... Um, the church's theology. But in order to really do that, Luther also had to really break down and sort of undermine and um, degrade the foundations of the church's authority. Because if the church is who gets to define what's right, the church is who gets to be um, infallible and, and inerrant in their proclamations, then you can't you can't challenge that. And so um, when Luther started to, and there, there was, again, um, sometimes the popular treatments of the Reformation make it look like these discussions weren't happening. But for 150 years before this, um, in, in pretty earnest ways, there was people who were having discussions about um, infallibility in the church and authority. And so in Luther's day, one of the main questions was, is, is the Pope uh, infallible and inerrant or just councils that are infallible and inerrant? That was one of the big debates going on. And what Luther said is, well, neither. Neither are infallible and neither are inerrant. And so he, he came to it and he said, well, if neither are infallible and neither are inerrant, then maybe they got this wrong. And so as he studied the scripture, um, he realized that he thought they did get that wrong. So he had to go back and say, well, okay, so if the church can't be my foundation because the church is errant and infallible, then what is? And one of the, you know, God, God works in mysterious timing and the whole environment of not just the religious environment, but the secular environment of the Renaissance period and the Reformation, they really go parallel. They really go hand in hand. And one of the battle cries of the Renaissance was ad fontes or to the source. And so this in the secular arenas took the took the form of going back to classical philosophy and trying to go back to the original languages and the original documentation of classical philosophy. Um, Calvin um, and Beza were both trained as lawyers in some senses. Beza was formally trained as a lawyer. Calvin started being training and then stopped. Beza actually published um, legal books and translations of Seneca and things like that. So did Calvin. And um, so on the secular side, they're, they're doing that kind of work. Well, on the uh, religious side, we have um, Catholic theologians who are, are looking at it and saying, well, we've got the Vulgate, which was, you know, came around in the three, uh, 300s, 400s, and we want to go back to the Greek. So there was this, this resurgence of Greek texts popping up. Um, we have Erasmus producing a Greek text. Um, we have all sorts of different people producing these Greek texts. And so Luther, in trying to figure out 
um, what's my foundation? He went back to the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts uh, that were available in the day. Now, there's a whole different science and discussion about text criticism and what the best manuscript tradition is and methodology. We don't need to get into that. But what Luther found is that when he went back to the original text of Scripture, he's found that it taught something very different, even down to the language details. So here's a, a real quick example. I, well, I'll give you two quick examples. So I, um, I don't have the, the passage right in front of me, but in Acts, where we read it in our English Bibles, and it says, be baptized for the repent, for, um, uh, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. In the Latin, um, the, the text reads, repent and do penance for the forgiveness of sin. So right on the surface of that, in Latin, we can see how that developed in the Roman Catholic tradition, where you're baptized, and then you also have to do these acts of penance to um, kind of take away the temporal consequences of sin. So that's a really straightforward one. A, a little bit less straightforward, but more significant, is in Latin, the word justification is justificare. And it's two, it's two words smashed together. It's a compound word. The first uh, is ju basically justice. It's justitiae. Um, and the second is faccio, and faccio means to make. So in Latin, the word justification means to make righteous. So when we read in the scriptures if in Latin that it says that God justifies sinners, we basically read God makes sinners righteous. Now, we hear that through Protestant lenses, and we think, well, yeah, God makes us righteous. But remember what we said, that for the Catholic mind in the medieval church, um, that was God making you righteous so in the final analysis can look at you and see that you're righteous. When we switch over back to Greek, um, it's really complex, and if you don't know Greek, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But the basic is that the the, the part of the word um, tells you whether this is a declarative word or a performative word, um, and it was a declarative word. So, so Luther looked at this and realized that if you look at the actual scriptures, and the scriptures are your foundation, um, you have to come to this understanding of justification. You can't come to... The, the understanding of justification that the Roman Catholic Church did. And actually, there are some Roman Catholic theologians that are starting to understand that about justification as well. Um, you're not going to hear a ton about them, but they'll, they'll say, yeah, justification in Scripture is basically a forensic category. Right. He, what I appreciate about that is basically this idea that you could go to the Scriptures, though his intellect was far superior than mine, and obviously his, his command yeah. of the languages, like you said, was important to his work. But it was this idea that the Scriptures have the primary place, and in fact, what I find that's great about Luther is his ability to receive and accept that as the sole authority. So I know that part of his, one of his first breakthroughs happened doing his lectures on the Psalms, where he realized the scriptures were really clear, that man wasn't just a little bit sin, sinful, but wholly sinful. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of solos that have come out of the, a lot of these onlys that came out of the Reformation. And it might be fair to say, like, solely unable was the first one. I mean, that's what really drove Calvin or Calvin. That was really drove Luther into understanding that the Bible is something very explicit, saying something very explicit that in many ways went against the teaching of the church. And I mean, I just love that here's a man who's dedicated the scriptures to obeying it, to reading through it with a discerning mind, to be focused and disciplined in his approach. Just setting the scriptures in their proper places, having like a magisterial and unique authority for faith and life is still something that I think the church struggles with is that there's, right. there's lots of great teaching. There's lots of great preaching, lots of great music, but really the scripture needs to be front and center of everything we do. It should be the sieve, which I've said before that we pass everything through. So, I mean, that scripture and its primary importance in the reformation, I guess really can't be understated. No. And one thing too, is that I think needs to be, uh, explained a little bit is Roman Catholic um, theologians and Protestant theologians come at uh, their understanding of the church's authority in different ways. Right. So for the, the Roman Catholic, um, the church has a magisterial authority. And what that means is that the church um, is the authority. Um, you, magisterial, you think of like majesty, the king. They're the ones that are the authority. Um, and the, the scriptures, not formally, but in practice, the scriptures are subservient to that. So the Roman Catholic Church decides what is scripture. They produce scripture. They decide what scripture means. And so even though they'll say that scripture and tradition or scripture and the church are on even grounds, in practice they're not. Right. Yeah. Protestants, on the other hand, believe that the church has what's called a ministerial authority. And what that means is that the scripture is the authority. And the uh, the church 
ministers or as a ministerial authority in that. They're a servant authority to that. So you could think of it like an ambassador, right? You've got the president, and the president is the authority. The ambassador is also an authority, but the ambassador only has authority insofar as he's faithfully executing the president's, uh, the president's wishes. If the ambassador goes rogue and goes to whatever nation they're representing to and decides to make all sorts of deals that they don't have authority to, to do, now, for political reasons, it might still make sense to follow through on those. But if the president didn't authorize those and um, the ambassador says, but I told them that they could have Hawaii, uh, the the presidents go, what are you talking about? Of course they can't have Hawaii. You can just give them a state. Um, and they're going to disregard that. And that that uh, unfaithful ambassador is going to be removed from their post. And Luther really looked at the church in the same way. He said the Roman Catholic Church for however many generations now, um, I think he said the last good pope was in the 1200s or something like that, maybe a little bit earlier. So he was looking at three or 400, maybe 500 years of, of bad theology and an increasing decline. He basically said they have not been faithful ministers of the word, and so they're being chastised and removed. And his hope was to restore the church and not have to separate from it. Um, but he's saying that God, uh, they're no longer faithful ministers of the word, so they're abusing their ministerial authority, and so it's being removed from them. Um, whereas the Roman Catholic Church is basically saying, like, there's no way we can abuse our authority because we're the supreme authority. So that's really where the difference breaks down is that Luther is saying, no, 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 the scripture is the supreme authority. It's not that there aren't other authorities that exist underneath the scripture. Um, that's a common misconception about one of the five solas is that sola scriptura means scripture is the only authority. But that's not true, right? The church right. is an authority. Your pastor's an authority. Right, absolutely. Um, Martin Luther is an authority in some ways, uh, more than just some guys on the internet having a podcast. Um, that's for sure. Yeah, so we have to remember that um, where where the difference is is that scripture is the supreme authority over the church and that's universal in in well, I shouldn't say it anymore but in in more conservative historically reformation based traditions the scripture is the supreme authority all controversies are judged by the light of scripture not um, not judging scripture itself and all this beautiful language like the, just what you explained the ministerial the magisterial, all of that being distilled down, a lot of that came out of the Reformation. So you can see how well thought out, how lovely the approach was, and how much of this we've kind of just, especially been raised in kind of the, I don't know, a broader evangelical community in the U.S., that you just take for granted a lot of this stuff, which has been processed. And that's why the, the catechisms, the confessions are such lovely and beautiful, like devotional works, because it is trying to get this, this outworking. And... I love that the Reformation also put that that kind of hammer on the nail, so to speak, of reading scripture as a church, which some of that has to do with the technology of obviously the printed word and how the Bible was the transmission of the Bible and, and some of the stuff you already talked about. But this lovely idea as well that the interpretation of scripture, like my interpretation of scripture does not norm all norms. Scripture right. interpreting itself norms all norms. And that more than that, like scripture interprets us. So it really right. is more just saying, well, the scriptures are important, and that's true. And even the Catholic Church would affirm that. But we're saying it, it does have a way of, of even reading me, and we read it together in kind of a, a community hermeneutic. And I think that is tremendous in this day and age, because how much now of all kinds of writing are we saying, well, it's not what the author meant to say. It's what I believe the author meant to say to me, right. and not just yeah. to us, like to me specifically. So I think there's like a lot of, uh, there's like so much meat up for us to chew on, even like in the common context. At least that's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. So before we move on to the next question, let me just read a couple articles out of the Westminster Confession. Do it. Um, so we're looking at chapter one, which is the, the chapter on scripture. And we see article nine says, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And then Article 10 says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, 
doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentences we are to rest but can be no other but the holy spirit speaking in scripture so what they're saying here and these these two things are really really fly and we're talking about you know at this point we're talking about over a hundred years of reflection in the protestant community so the westminster confession really is kind of the most um, one of the most refined confessions that we have coming out of the, the Reformation, and that's why it stood the test of time so well, is we have two things here. Scripture is the interpreter of Scripture, not the church. When we don't know what Scripture means, we don't ask the church, we ask the Scriptures. Now, obviously, the church interprets the Scriptures, and an individual does usually need to go to the church to uh, be taught the Scriptures. But um, the Scriptures are what interpret the Scriptures. That was different than the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it's still different than the Roman Catholic Church. I've, I've got another uh, recording that I do where I read through the Catholic Catechism and offer some critique. And one of their first things that they say is that the interpretation of scriptures belongs to the church. That it's the bishops and the priests that are, to, really the bishops that are interpreting the scriptures. And then the Article 10 there is that all controversies of religion, uh, decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers. So all of these different authorities that the Roman Catholic Church had in place and relied on, the church fathers, the councils, the popes, the, all the different things that the liturgies, all the different things they had, uh, and even private spirits. So even people who claim that they're getting direct revelation from God, which was really common in the Middle Ages, um, they're saying that all of those things are judged by Scripture. None of those things judge Scripture. Exactly. And that's really, really key. That's another one of those slogans that came out of the Reformation. And it sounds like it's a joke, but it's real, is that Scripture is the norming norm that itself is not normed by any other norms. Yes. And that's a mouthful, but what it, what it means is that Scripture is itself not conditioned or judged by anything else, but it is the thing that judges all other things. Um, and that's really, really important to a, a good, solid, reformed hermeneutic is that um, if I think the Scripture means X, um, but the other parts of the Scripture seem to think it means Y, then I am automatically wrong. Right. Um, now, you, those other parts of Scripture need to be interpreted, and there's all those caveats that we need to understand hermeneutics and we need to study, but Scripture has the final say. Yeah, but we're starting with this baseline that it is Scripture, and that comports with right. so many other methods of like proper apologetics where because it is a transcendent truth, it can be self-referencing. In fact, it should right. be. And, that, and that's, yeah, that's some good Vantillian apologetics right there. Listen, we had to get Vantillian here eventually. It, I'm always sad it took eight episodes. Yeah. So I think that's, honestly, that's like a really good and I think wonderful perspective on the Reformation because, again, I'm concerned not just with like the giant theological concepts or the articulation that came out of it, but this idea of returning, recovery, of putting first things first and like how that should continue to influence how we live the Christian life and that these things are big deals just because they seem normal to us. It is worth celebrating a return yeah. to God's word. And in the Israelite community did that time and time again, when they return to God, when they'd find the law of God and they would meditate it and fall under it, under its weight of glory and just respond in awe, that that's what we should be doing with the scriptures on a regular basis, that we're not worshiping the Bible itself, but the actual word of God, who is Christ Jesus made flesh, who is not just, of course, the key that unlocks the scriptures, but essentially the box that contains them. So there's right. something beautiful to me about the Reformation that is far more than just all the intellectual underpinnings, all the wonderful, though they are robust and beautiful theological concepts, but how it teaches us to live rightly, or at least pushes us in the proper direction. And I like that you drew in the confessions because those are wonderful tools that have really been thought through in a, a wonderful way that we should use more regularly. So I, I think it would be yeah. great to, we got some questions. Actually, we got all kinds of great questions. We did. Uh, in the Facebook group, uh, the Reformed Brotherhood Facebook group about yes. um, various components. Like people just went wild uh, with the Reformation, all kinds of wonderful things. Is there one there that you want to go after, Tony? Yeah, well, we can probably go through a few of them. I, I will it. be the first to admit that I am not an expert on uh, the Reformation from a historical perspective. Um, I've done a little bit of studies. So I'm going to stumble my way through a few of these. Um, some of these are really great questions. And I know, I'll read I the agree. questions even if I don't have an answer. Um, so uh, Jason Heinrich 
uh, asked, what were the different reformers' views on the transmission of Scripture? Um, now, this this question comes out of an ongoing discussion uh, that's happening in a lot of a uh, lot of conversations in the Reform Pub Facebook group um, about uh, is is the transmission of the text. Um, there's a clause in the Westminster Confession that says that the word was made kept pure in all ages. And so some would say that if there's a reading in the text, um, like the, um, they call it the pericope adultare, which is the story of the adulterous woman cast, who, you know, he without sin cast for stone, right. that, that account. Um, if that is a, an account that is present uh, dominantly in the church throughout its history, as far as we can tell, then we should look at the evidence now that says it probably wasn't original to the manuscript and we should um, we should consider it but ultimately disregard it because God wouldn't allow his church to have an impure text. Um, so that's one theory. And there's our camp that would say that all the reformers had that. I don't think that's the case. Um, there's another uh, a theory which would say basically that God preserved his text, but he did it through a preponderance of manuscripts. Um, and that the, the, the actual true reading, the original reading, was always present in the church, but not necessarily in dominant fashion or um, being used everywhere or even in the majority, but that it was always present. Now, I don't know any specific reformers um, as far as what they held. So I would suspect, just like any other um, view that we have in the church now, that there was probably a representative in the Reformation that held it um, as far as Reformed thought. Um, There's some evidence in Calvin and um, Beza, who um, Beza was very involved in text criticism. There's some evidence that they engaged in what's called um, uh, the, the term uh, the term lost me, but conjectural emendation, where they would look at a collection of text of texts and they would say, well. I don't think that any of the physical copies, any of the texts that I have in front of me represent the original reading. So they would they would make an educated guess at what they thought a given reading was based on, um, you know, lots of different criteria. Um, to me, that kind of activity would uh, argue against sort of the um, the pure in all ages uh, kind of strict confessionalist literal reading of that uh, clause. Uh, and then on the Westminster Assembly itself, there were lots of people who engaged in text criticism. So I don't know that we can can say that the confession says that. Uh, but I don't know any specifics. But that's a really good question. It would be a really interesting a research paper if I had time for it. Yeah, um, no good answer for that. Yeah, so he also asks, how did the reformers point back to the ecumenical creeds and councils for the basis of breaking off from the Roman Catholic Church? So um, I think what he's getting at is is how did they root their ongoing existence as the one church um, in the ecumenical creeds. And, and this is a complicated question, but the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church that um, that split off of it, or if, if you want to talk about it as the, the Protestants were the true church and the Roman Catholic Church departed from it, um, they all believed basically the same thing about the Trinity and basically the same things about the um, hypostatic union and some sort of the core creedal facts about the church. One thing, though, that they did um, point to is there were certain canons out of the Council of Nicaea um, about bishops and how bishops couldn't transfer between regions. So if you were elected or appointed a bishop in one region, you were never allowed to be a bishop in any other region. Well, that became a problem, though, when you had a bishop in one region who would then rise to power and be appointed the Bishop of Rome and be elected the Pope, is they would transfer regions. So they did occasionally point to the fact that the entire idea of the papacy um, almost always uh, resulted in a violation of canon law. They also pointed... Um, pointed to various clauses in the Nicene Creed about salvation and how that worked to kind of root the fact that the way that uh, the Roman Catholic model worked as far as salvation didn't really comport with how salvation functioned uh, according to the creed. Um, so there's that. Uh, Eric Yeager said, did the reformers have a tendency to dismiss everything associated with Rome and thereby throw out the baby with the bathwater at times? Um, I think that's a tough question. Because different reformers handle it differently. Right, exactly. So um, Luther, you can kind of put them on a spectrum too. And this is not to say that they didn't consider Scripture. So I'm not saying that um, because Luther didn't get rid of um, the use of, of images in pedagogical use that he somehow didn't finish his reform. Um, I don't think he went far enough in his reforms, but not because he was committed to Roman Catholic tradition or something like that. Um 
But there were times where uh, people, particularly Zwingli um, and some of the traditions that followed after Zwingli. So Zwingli's uh, reform branched off and there was there was John Calvin who followed one direction. And then there was more radical movements that ultimately led to the Anabaptists that led a different direction. And so some people in Zwingli's reform, um, they did have a tendency to just jettison things simply because the Roman Catholic Church affirmed it. So uh, infant baptism uh, was one of those things that some parts of the church didn't reflect critically on scripture and use their critical reflection in order to uh, explain why they no longer believed in infant baptism. So, um, but other parts of the church, they did, um, you know, Zwingli and some of the Baptist traditions in um, in England, they did critically reflect on um, scripture and did come to a conclusion of credo-baptism. So it's not as though anybody who dismissed credo-baptism uh, was because they were just jettisoning church tradition. But th- it was the case that some did. Um, I don't think any of the big names in, in the Magisterial Reformation, which would be like Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, John Knox, those kinds of names, I don't think anybody in that tradition can be said to have just jettisoned things um, simply because it was an overreaction. Right. And th- these men, it's important to remember, were also, they were products of their time as well. And Absolutely. they all handled it slightly different. Like even Zwingli, who was, I think, a musician in some rights, he was very convicted about the use of music in the church because of the Roman Catholic influence. So absolutely, everybody had different convictions. And of course, you get people responding to these leaders in either like outright violence of destruction of like icons, for instance, and some were a little bit more sensitive to how they disposed of that. So there was, I think, a temptation to let the pendulum swing the entire other way. But of course, all of that was was good intention. They were trying again to measure everything against scripture, letting it norm itself. Yeah. So let me pick one more. Uh, Chris Woolbridge asks, was Luther's commitment to sola fide, uh, which means faith alone in conflict with his understanding of the sacraments or were the two in harmony? So this is a, this is a really complicated question. So I'm going to try to give you kind of a quick and dirty answer. Um, Luther's understanding, particularly of baptism is what we're talking about is Luther's understanding is that, uh, and there are some ways where you can draw distinctions between Luther and the Lutherans that followed him. You can do the same thing with Calvin and the Calvinists. Um, But Luther, his understanding of baptism was that baptism really did save. And we call that baptismal regeneration. Now, there are different ways that we can talk about baptismal regeneration. And Lutheran baptismal regeneration is not the same as Roman Catholic. But Luther's idea was that God works through baptism. Um, in mysterious ways, but he really works. So anyone who is baptized um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a properly constituted church um, is saved. They're saved, they're regenerated, um, and and that's just the way it is. Now, I don't think that that is in conflict with uh, sola fide. And the reason for that is that um, it's not man's work that's doing that. Right, exactly. So the Roman Catholic model... Um, it, it, it is man's work. It's the very working of the work. That's a, a, a phrase actually that Augustine coined, but it's the working of the work which brings about the effect. The, the work that the priest does, God is involved in that, but it's the work that the priest does that brings it about. So um, in the Roman Catholic model, in the right circumstances, a Muslim could baptize an atheist and it would bring about the same effect as if a priest baptized a Catholic couple's baby. Um, it's not so in the Lutheran model. So I, I don't think that um, the Lutheran model of baptismal regeneration is in conflict with um, sola fide. Now, I do think there's some inconsistencies with some other parts of their soteriology that, um, you know, you'll ask them, well, if everybody gets saved in baptism, then how is anybody not saved? And they'll say, well, you can resist grace. Well, you're still having to do something then in order to remain saved, even if that doing something is actively not resisting grace. Um, and that's not something that God does for you because they won't say that God ever condemns, condemns somebody, um, but on his side of things, he's always extending grace. He's always extending salvation. Um, so the way that we, they account for how people are not saved is that person has chosen to resist grace. Well, that leaves the way that they're more or less the way that they're saved is that they, uh, they don't choose to not resist grace. Then they, they become unsaved when they choose to resist grace. So I think that's a little bit consistent, but the actual sacramental theology, I, I don't think entirely is. 
most of that is like as clear as mud, honestly. Like once yeah. you push on the outworkings of that, it gets really funky really quick. Yeah, and that's one of the one of the main differences, at least in modern, and, and it was true with Luther and Calvin too. And some of this is just some of it might just be personality differences, and, and that I mean our personality plays into our theology as much as we wish it didn't, and it does. But Lutherans tend to be much more comfortable with uh, loose ends, so they'll they'll say. Um, you know, Christ died for all, and his salvation really brought about his his death really brought about salvation. Uh, but then they won't say they won't agree with the idea that well, Christ's sacrifice was in vain for some people. Well, Lutheran uh, the Reformed look at that and go, well, that's just a logical you know that's just a logical point. If Christ Christ's salvation or if Christ's death really brought about salvation, and he died for all people, therefore all people are saved. And they would say, well, no, that's not it's not like that. Um, and they'll actually say like, well, you're just being too logical. You're just you're just over rationalizing things. We don't want to go further than the scripture. Um, and this isn't a bash on our Lutheran brothers at all, but they are more comfortable with those loose ends. They don't feel compelled to resolve things um, as neat and tidy as the Reformed do. On the flip side, I think the Reformed sometimes do fall into the trap of over rationalizing things, of not not leaving as much room for mystery as as sometimes we ought. And I think that takes place in you know Reformed thought sometimes with the arguments over infralapsarianism versus superlapsarianism right. or the you know the specifics of God's decrees and all of those things. I think sometimes we can get bogged down in things that we were never. They're not clearly revealed in Scripture, and so it's okay to talk about them. But sometimes we get way too um, into the nitty gritty on those things. Yeah, it's good to appreciate that there is, in some ways, like a melting pot of different ideas of different theology represented in the Reformation. Like, just as a straight aside, I find it so funny sometimes. Like, like let's just say, for instance, if you're a Baptist, like hardcore Baptist that you would even want to celebrate Luther because Luther's views on your application of that sacrament, like we couldn't even repeat on this podcast. I mean, that's how like strongly worded they are. And same with like Zwingli and Calvin. Zwingli, by the way, probably has like the sweetest reformer name. Can we just agree with that? It's it's pretty slick. Like he sounds like, again, he should be a rapper. Like I would, I would buy that album for sure. Uh, But like Zwingli and Calvin felt, you know, very much the same way about baptism. But like, if you're from a Pentecostal or like, slightly charismatic tradition uh, they would like repudiate you as like an absolute nutcase so it's just interesting right. how the diverse their opinions and views were but how god used this epoch to really bring about like you said a recovery of his word and of his power and his majesty over all areas of, of faith and life yeah so uh this week's question in the pub we can get to that and then we have a special announcement about a new promotion we've got going um Question for this episode was, apart from Calvin and Luther, who was your favorite reformer? Uh, Jake Swink posted a picture of a book called The Great Reformer, which has a, uh, a picture of Pope Francis on it, which is the most ironic thing ever. Uh, but he said, seriously, uh, Thomas Cranmer or John Knox. Uh, Matt Butts noted uh, that John Huss was a pre-Reformation reformer, which is uh, one of those people we talked to before. Uh, John Chantry says, does the Spurge count? Uh, I assume he's talking about Spurgeon, uh, and I said that Spur- the Spurge would punch him in the throat if he ever heard him calling him the th- no Spurge. No doubt. Tony Lee Ross says... What else says, do we have? Uh, John Knox. John Knox. Lots of John Knox. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of John Knox love, which is fantastic. Again, I would That's encourage, great. as probably you would, anybody that hasn't read something about each of these gentlemen, it is worth your time just to go back yeah. and read the Lord's work in their life that we have no doubt benefited from. Absolutely. And then uh, Dennis Boyer said Oikolampadius, which is probably one of the coolest sounding names, but it means house lamp. That's fantastic. Yeah. So one of the traditions (laughs) among these humanist uh, Greek scholars was they would rename themselves with a Greek word, and uh, Oikolampadius picked house lamp. Classic. I love that. Nerd. (laughs) Uh, he also actually lived with uh, Servetus of uh, Burning at the Stake fame uh, for a brief time. So that was an interesting historical fact of the Reformation. I think that is probably the best thing that you've said all night. Yes. So yes. if people want to like learn more, perhaps you were, somebody's looking for, like myself, looking for yet another wonderful resource to use. What's a good way they could go about doing that, Tony? 
Well, I'm glad that you asked. It's not like we practiced that at all. So we are very excited to announce that we have a special offer for our listeners. Uh, you can actually go to audibletrial.com slash brotherhood, and you can get a free audiobook uh, and a free 30-day trial. And I haven't done it yet, um, but I, I love audiobooks. And one of the greatest things about this is that you get this free trial. You don't, it doesn't cost you anything. And you get a free audiobook, which even if you cancel your trial, you get to keep. And they have some really, really great um, options on there. So we're going to try every week to make a recommendation. Um, but for this week, um, there is a book called uh, Church History in Plain Language. Um, I think it's by Bruce Shelley. And it's a church history book. It covers the whole range of church history. But apart from um, some other kinds of church history books, um, it is what it says. It's in plain language. He focuses on kind of the everyday things that your average person needs to know about the church history. So there's obviously a big section on the Reformation there. So you could sign up for that audio book um, and you could, um, you could download it now. You can listen to it on your way to work. Um, I should have looked this up ahead of time, but let me find out how much, uh, how many hours of amazing writing you get. Uh, it's 21 hours and 43 minutes. That's what I'm talking about. you get about. it for free. So you could listen to nearly a full day worth of church history at that point. Um, so I'd say check it out, uh, audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. And uh, if you sign up through that link, you also help us. Um, we get uh, a little bit of a credit from them uh, to help cover some of our costs. I appreciate that after all of the huge theological terms we've used this evening, that you clarified that free means you don't have to pay for it. Yes. Free means you don't have to pay for it. Do not have so, to pay. And there's a lot of other great books, too, if you're not interested in a 21-hour uh, church history lecture. Uh, there's lots of great stuff on there. There's fiction books. There's other great stuff. Lots of Mike Horton. And we'll, we'll bring some of those recommendations to you each week. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't read that one yet or listened to it, but I'm definitely going to check that out that sounds fantastic so do you yeah, have any let me, uh, let me just give you one more recommendation if you're into reading books instead of listening to them um zondervan uh put out a couple years ago a two-volume church history set and most of the time um the reformation is treated in the first uh church history volume it's usually like you go through the whole first half of the church and then the reformation is added to the end of it this one actually treats it um pre-reformation to present day which is a bit unique um, it's by John Woodbridge and Frank James III, who used to be the provost at Gordon-Conwell, and he's actually a descendant of Jesse James. So uh, that's pretty cool. And it's very, very good. I actually think I think you actually got this for me for Christmas one year, if I remember correctly. I think so. Um, yes, I think you did. Either you or Adam did. I, I don't remember. I think it was you guys. Um, but it's an excellent book. It's got a great picture of um, Billy Graham on the front of it. So, and there's several chapters um, that cover everything from um, kind of the beginning of the Reformation with John Huss all the way through to um, obviously up to the present day. So it's covering like the confessional era, pietism, all that stuff. Um, and then there's the ever-present story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez, which is also an excellent one. It's kind of the default text you're going to find in any sort of uh, church history survey course in a, a seminary level education. It's a fantastic set have any final thoughts on Reformation Day? Um, well, I mean, the Reformation is still alive and well. So you're going to read a Amen. lot of places. A lot of people are going to say the Reformation's over. Um, Pope Francis and some uh, forces in the Lutheran Church are planning an announcement on the 500th anniversary, which is next year, um, that the Reformation is over. They're going to recall the Reformation. But the fact is that um, the Reformation's not over. And it's not. we're not just talking about the Reformation as a historical event or even a theological movement. Um, Reformed theology and Lutheran theology, reformational theology, is about the reformation that happens in our hearts as we follow Jesus right and trust him to change us. And so even if the theological, the historical reformation is over, the reformation of God's people is never over until he comes again. So I, I don't think that we can ever really say with good conscience that the reformation is over until we're, you know, we're in, in glory in Christ's presence. Can't stop, won't stop. I would absolutely echo those ideas because I think oftentimes we first think about the, theolog the, the uh, reformation as theological concepts primarily. And then we think of it as like it was some grand like ecclesiastical cleaning of the house. And primarily it was about effecting a moral change by returning to the scriptures, the law of God, and letting that saturate and marinate in our hearts and change our lives. And if anybody else is like me, I so desperately still need that. So I'm looking forward to celebrating the day, probably having a good German beer and yes. really trying to meditate 
on what God, what amazing things God did through that period of time, how much I benefited from God's love to me by way of these particular gentlemen who exhibited amazing courage of conviction. But more than that, to just to just rest solely on the work of Christ, which is outside myself, especially in a day and age where like, you know, you go to Barnes and Noble or you go look at Amazon.com and there's so much stuff about improving your life, especially like the quintessential self-help books. And I've often thought, what if I don't want myself helping me because myself is awful. And I love that we have Christ who is outside of us, who has imputed his righteousness to us. We have the Holy Spirit within us, which is given to us, but is separate, is holy and distinct from us. And that is who we can rely on to make us more like God for his glory and for our good. So there's a lot we're celebrating still. So Tony, happy Reformation Day. Mm -hmm.